everyone. Hey, my name is Perry. I'm not Zach, in case you were wondering. Um, Zach is out of town, but it's my privilege to be here. I'm on staff at the Boulder campus, and I'm here to make you all appreciate Zach even more. So that's, that's what the point of my presence is this morning. No, it's really good to be here. Um, I'm delighted to be able to have an opportunity to be in this room with you all. It's the first time I've gotten to preach here, so um, it's really, really fun to be here this morning. I want to tell you a story about a man named Matt White. Matt was a major league baseball pitcher, and back in 2003, he had an extended family member who was going through a hard time. She lived on 50 acres in Massachusetts and needed to sell the property. So Matt stepped in to help her out, purchased it for the appraised value of $50,000. So he gets the 50 acres of dirt for $50,000. He begins to excavate it and dig down and kind of explore the property a little bit more because he planned to build a home there eventually. And it turns out that the dirt had a surprise for Matt. He found what's called Goshen stone throughout the property. Goshen stone is a landscaping stone. It's a flat rock that's used to make patios and walkways and other landscaping applications. Matt didn't just have a little bit of this stone though. He had 24 million tons of it on his property. I can't even visualize that or imagine that really. But it turns out this property that he had bought for $50,000 was instead reappraised for about two to four million dollars, somewhere in that neighborhood. It just shows us that what can happen when we judge something based only on the surface. This morning, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're not gonna be looking at real estate though. We're going to be looking at the value that we assign to each other based on what we see on the surface of each other. If you're joining us for the first time or maybe the first time in a while, let me just say welcome. We're glad you're here. We are in week seven of the book of James, and we're finally stepping out of chapter one. But we saw so many great things in chapter one. These past couple weeks, we've looked at ways that James was warning the people he was writing to about having hearts that are deceived. He said a couple weeks ago, He said, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It was the evangelist D.L. Moody who said that our Bible should be bound in shoe leather, meaning that we should take what we know to the streets. We should not only just fill our heads with knowledge or more information, but God calls us to live out what we know, to take it and act on it. Then another way we might be deceived is what we saw last week. He said, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The kind of religion, though, that does matter to God is a religion where we would visit widows and orphans, care for widows and orphans in their distress, and to keep our own distance from the plans, the ideas, the philosophies of our world, to keep oneself unstained by the world. So it's with those things in the back of our minds that we step into this new chapter now. Because what we see is that James is still giving us instructions on what it looks like to live a life where we're not deceived, but we're truly following, living in obedience to Christ. And what we see here is this whole issue of judgment on the surface. So let's open our Bibles, if you have them this morning, to James chapter 2, verse 1. This is a mark it up series, which just means that we are encouraging people to make notes in your Bibles. We're encouraging you to, to circle things in the text if you feel comfortable doing that. So I'll have some of those marks on the screen that you can make this morning. 
Here's verse 1 of chapter 2. My brothers, or my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Circle the word partiality. Partiality could also be known as favoritism, playing favorites, giving someone an advantage while you disadvantage another person. Literally, the word means to receive or to accept the face of something. It is a surface level thing. And James isn't talking about real estate. He's talking about human beings, how we might judge them based on the surface. And he has this very particular situation in mind that he gets into in the next verse. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Okay, we're going to interrupt ourselves right here in the middle of that phrase. Do you catch what's going on? James has two different kinds of people in mind. One is dressed impeccably. One is dressed very poorly. On the first hand, with the impeccably dressed person, we might want to grab their attention. We might want to make eye contact. We might initiate a conversation with them. With the second person, though, we might go out of our way to avoid all of those things. We might want to just pretend like they're not even there and just go our own way and allow them to go their own way as well. James says, though, that whenever we do this, whenever we make this kind of surface level judgment or assessment of another person, that we are going against the very character of God. We are being inconsistent with that character. So let's keep reading. Okay, if you're doing these things, he says then in verse four, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. James calls this evil. When we show favoritism, it is evil. And it's evil because we are going against the grain of God's ways, of God's very character. You might look at these two different words where he says, has not God chosen? That's one phrase. But then to contrast that, going down a little further, but you have dishonored. God has chosen the poor. You have dishonored the poor. This goes against God's character, and we can see that by expanding our view in other parts of Scripture. We might turn, for example, to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I have these written up on the screen. I don't have the actual verses up there, but you might write down these references as you go along. In Deuteronomy 10, James says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. God is not this way, so God's people should not be this way. God is not someone who shows favoritism, so we should not be people as his people who show favoritism either. Even further on down in verse 18, then he says, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God looks after the cause of the people who are the most vulnerable, the orphans, the widows, The sojourner is someone who's traveling from their home. Maybe they don't even have a home. They are vulnerable. They're often poor, and they have to leave and find a place, and they have nowhere to call home. James says, love those people. Care for them. Execute them. Execute justice for them. And then, here we see that God's heart is very much aligned in that same direction. And we shouldn't be surprised, though, when we examine the life of Christ. 
Christ himself in the book of Isaiah was prophesied to be someone who had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The Apostle Paul in um, 2 Corinthians picks up the same kind of idea about Christ and he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus identified himself with the poor, the very people who are being mistreated, who are being judged against. Later, uh, we might also look at, at Paul's writings to the Corinthians again. Paul talking about the background of these believers in the church in Corinth, and he says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Okay, I know that's a lot of scripture, but the point of those references is so that we might see that God's character is different than a character of someone who shows partiality. That God is opposed to that whole kind of idea of showing favoritism and a judgment based on the surface of who somebody is. We should point out, though, that when we talk about the poor and how God has chosen them, that the poor are chosen or approved by God the same way that anyone else is approved by God. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. The rich are shown favor by God in the exact same way. But it's been pointed out how the poor don't have the same trappings of this life and this world and their experience that many of us have in our own. The poor don't have all of the lures of stuff, materialism, of comforts of this world, and the pleasures of life. They simply don't have to be held back by those. And so in that sense, it's easier for them to long for what God's kingdom will bring because there's so little in this life to hold them back. God's heart is for the poor. They are rich in faith. And that is where the treatment that these people have against the poor is in violation of God's very ways, of God's very heart. So not only does it contradict God's heart and character, but it even clouds our own judgment. As we keep reading, we see that. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In James' day, you had two categories of people socioeconomically. You did not have a middle class. You had the very rich and you had the very poor. The very rich were few, the very poor were many, but the very poor were often enslaved by the few rich. The rich would take advantage of the poor whenever they could. If the poor could not pay their debts, then they would take them to court and to try to get possession of their land or whatever material resources they might have had. So as the rich got richer, the poor really did get poorer. And James is just pointing out how crazy it is that these rich people are the ones who the poor in James's church would show favoritism towards. It's absurd that they would actually show favoritism to the people who are mistreating them, who are mishandling their own very faith in the name of Christ. And that's what we've seen here. Are these not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? 
This is the honorable name of Christ. If you go back up to verse one, you can see this name that's given this beautiful long title here by James. The name of Jesus only shows up twice in this book. It showed up first in chapter one, very early on, and now it shows up here in the beginning of chapter two. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, points to the fact that Christ is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. That Jesus is the very Lord of glory. The, the one who is, has the ultimate majesty in all the universe. The one who is the king of the universe. And James says that these people are maligning. They're, they're mocking the fact that these poor Christians have their faith. They're mocking the name of Jesus. So how crazy is it that they would show favoritism in return towards the very people who are mocking the name of their Savior. I was talking to Pastor Tom earlier this week about this passage, and he just brought out the very good point about how it's the absurdity of putting someone on a pedestal, another human being on a pedestal, while God is in the room. It's the absurdity of elevating another human being in front of the king of the universe, We should not be people who do this. We should not be people who show this kind of favoritism just because of the surface of someone, because of their appearance or their their status and their career, their job title or their wealth. It's absurd for us to do this in front of the king of the universe. So we see here that favoritism is something that contradicts or it's incompatible with God's character but it also violates God's law. We keep reading now. Look at verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. You might circle that word love because really the the contrast of this passage is between partiality that we circled in verse one of chapter two and the word love that we're circling here in verse eight. Love and partiality could not be more different from each other. Love is the distinguishing mark of what it means to be a Christian, and it's a distinguishing mark of what it means to be a part of this church. We all know that how attractive love can be to outsiders when they see love among God's people. We also know how repulsive it can be when you see a church who claims to be the church of God's people and they have no love. Love is the distinguishing mark, and we see that in the pages of Scripture. Here are some other references you might jot down. Matthew 22, we see the great commandment expressed there where Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which this second part, love your neighbor as yourself, is a quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It's in the Old Testament that God told his people early on, the people of Israel, that this was a distinguishing mark of what it means to be in relationship with the one true God. In Matthew 5, Jesus even made this a whole nother level of love when he expressed that loving the lovable is completely unremarkable. Everybody can love the people who are lovable to us. That's not a problem. But Jesus calls us to love even our enemies the people who we find unlovable, the people who are different than us, the people who maybe we find very little in common with, but Jesus calls us to love them just like we would love ourselves. There's no greater distinguishing mark. There's no greater source of identity for us 
how we should be known from outsiders than love. That's who we are. But there's such a contrast between love and partiality. Why do people show favoritism in the first place? It's probably because we want some advantage. If I hang around with people who are wealthier than I am, maybe I'll benefit from their wealth somehow. Maybe I'll get a nice meal out of it. I'll get to ride in their nice car or go over to their nice house. If I hang out with people who are smarter than I am, I might feel smarter about myself. If I hang out with people who are attractive, maybe I'll, I will feel more attractive. That's what partiality does. It's something where I'm trying to get something from somebody else. And at the same time, I'm trying to avoid something I don't like in another person. But love has none of that in view. Love seeks to give. Love seeks to make up for the shortfalls that might be apparent in somebody else. Love is not self-seeking, but it's self-giving. This is the contrast between love and partiality. And James points that out here by pointing to this verse. If we love our neighbor as ourself, we are doing well. And then he goes on and expresses this. In verse 9, he says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do, do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. That phrase, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, can seem kind of harsh. I mean, doesn't it seem kind of extreme for a scenario that James has just laid out this picture in front of us of people coming into a worship service and one person being shown the best seat and another person being shown something that's far from the best seat, but they still got a seat. I mean, they're still in the room. It's not like these people just turned them away at the door because they weren't dressed right or they smelled bad or anything like that. What's the big deal? See, I think this is part of the rub when it comes to partiality. We're so used to it and it's so natural to us. You don't have to look any further than an elementary school playground to see favoritism going on. It just is inherent. You don't have to teach the kids how to be partial. They already know it. I think of industries in our world like the financial services industry. I was a part of it for a short time. A lot of people were a part of that industry for a short time. But I can just tell you that as a financial advisor, you have your A clients, your B clients, and your C clients. The C clients and the A clients are separated by the size of their portfolio. If you are a C client, you should not expect to go over your portfolio with your advisor over a steak dinner. If you're an A client, you might expect to go on a vacation with your advisor to go over your portfolio. It's just a natural part of an industry, and it's a natural part of our world. But go back to verse 5 where James describes the poor. He calls them heirs of the kingdom. What happens when you encounter an heir of the kingdom? My daughter, who is in high school, just went on a trip to Belize. 
She went with her high school, so a teacher led the trip and some other students went along as well. My daughter had been saving up her money for years to try to go on this trip, and it was just an amazing experience for her. But who should she run into there but some heirs of a kingdom? She ran into this couple, Prince William, Princess Kate in Belize. What do you think happens when the heirs of the kingdom show up? If you're on the phone, you hang up and say, I got to go. And you start taking pictures or selfies or videos. You try to get their attention and say, hey, you look beautiful. Just to see if maybe they'll acknowledge that you said something to them. You're not disregarding them. You're trying to do whatever you can to get noticed because it's the future heirs of a kingdom. What would happen if we saw each other that same way when we walked in the door as future heirs of a kingdom? The great author and thinker C.S. Lewis said this. Maybe you've heard this quote. He said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. This does not mean that we're to be perpetually solemn because we're around these people of such great gravity. We must play, but our merriment must be of the kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption, and we might add no partiality. It's absurd that in the presence of the king of the universe, we might put someone on a pedestal But it's equally absurd that in the presence of the king of the universe that we might disregard someone and shove them over to the side because of the way they look, because of who they, their title for their job, their lack of a job, something on the surface. Absurdity cuts, or the absurdity of partiality rather, cuts both ways. It's absurd that we would elevate somebody based on the surface. It's absurd that we would, um, we would demote somebody based on the surface. Both of those miss the true value that's inside of people. And James says that that is what makes us transgressors of God's law, of loving each other. So we keep looking at these verses here, and we see that James is trying to explain how we are transgressors of God's law. We are sinning by just breaking this one law. He says that if you take the case of adultery, you take the case of murder, say you commit murder, but you don't commit adultery, you're guilty of breaking the law. It's because the law is a unified whole. The law is not just broken up, like you just broke that part of the law or that part, but you break one part, you break it all because it all ties back into that central tenet of you should love your neighbor as yourself. Adultery Murder, those are both failures to love our neighbor as ourself. Partiality, it's a failure to love our neighbor as ourself. So if we think about this big picture, that we are violating God's law, that we are doing something incompatible with God's character when we show favoritism, we might just be overwhelmed by that because we know how easy it is to show favoritism. So we need a solution. 
We find that as we look back at the text in verses 12 and 13. James says this, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James asks us to keep in view the law of liberty by which we will be judged by. And as we keep that in view, then we are reminded of the big picture of the fact that there is a judgment that God gives that's according to God's ways. It's called the law of liberty in a way that we should really focus our attention on because it's a law in terms that it tells us God's requirements But it's not something that restricts us. It's actually something that gives us freedom. Look, this sounds like a contradiction of terms. In our culture, it's whatever I want to do with whomever I want to do it, whenever I want to do it. That's where freedom is. That I just follow the course of my impulses. I follow my heart, and that's where I truly find freedom. But that's a fast track to slavery and destruction. It's actually by coming underneath the authority of God, the authority of God's word that I find true liberty because God is the one who made me to be in relationship with him. God's word is what shows me what it means to walk in relationship with him. So when I put myself under the authority of God's word, the law of liberty, that's where I find true freedom. And James says to keep that in mind as we act and as we speak, because that will orient us the right way when it comes to how we relate to each other. He says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. There's maybe no better illustration I can think of than in Matthew 18. Again, it's not on the slide, but you might jot this down. Matthew 18, Jesus is telling a parable. And he says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Each talent is 20 years of wages for a day laborer. So somehow this man has accumulated 10,000 talents worth of debt. It's a lot of money. Okay, so this guy who owes so much... He's called to pay up. And since he could not pay, no kidding, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarius is a single day's wage for a day laborer. So you have a hundred days worth of labor right there. And seizing him, the one who owed a hundred days worth, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I 
had mercy on you. Partiality, favoritism is a lack of mercy. Mercy means to show care or concern to someone in need. And rather than showing care or concern for someone in need, we are casting aside someone in need when we show favoritism. The great mercy that God has given us, though, is a mercy that is meant to flow through us and extend out into our relationships with each other. That's why mercy triumphs over judgment. We have no fear of God's judgment if we have received God's mercy. So we should not be people who show judgment towards other people, a lack of mercy, when we have received such great mercy from God. That would be absurd for us to withhold it from some other human being when we have received such a greater amount from the king of the universe. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what we see when we look at the entirety of this passage is that we can view others with mercy when we have a clear view of God's mercy towards us. When we understand how much God has given us, we can then extend it to each other and not be people who give into favoritism, give into partiality, but rather than that, to be people who love, who love our neighbor as ourselves, including our neighbors, or maybe we might even say especially our neighbors who need so much because they lack so much. This is who we are called to be as God's people, the people who love each other as we hope to be loved ourselves. As you're sitting here this morning, I can imagine there could be several different possible responses that we might have to what's going on in this chapter of James. We might sit here this morning and just feel the conviction of God's spirit in our hearts because we know of how we have been shown such great mercy but have failed to show that same mercy to people around us. There may be a call on us this morning to admit that, to go to a person who we have offended by not showing mercy and to just admit it to them, to confess it to them and ask for their forgiveness. At the same time then, to go before God and to admit it to him, to confess it to him. The Bible says that if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Maybe that's the place where you're at this morning, where you need to do that kind of work. Maybe somebody's in here this morning who has never received God's mercy. You don't even know what that looks like. You didn't even know that God could have mercy on us. If you've never received that, you don't know how to do that, we would love to talk with you. And when I say we, I mean myself or anyone in a green shirt or with a name tag on out there in the lobby after the service, we would love to talk with you about what it can look like to receive God's mercy. For all of us, though, this is a call to worship. The great God who has given us so much the great God who has extended his mercy. We should identify with the poor in that scenario that James laid out. We are the people who come into the presence of God with nothing to offer. We come empty-handed. We are the ones in shabby clothing. And we come in there and Jesus is there to welcome us, to give us his great mercy because we need it. It's all we have, but it's all sufficient for what we need. So this is a time to worship. This is a time to respond. And may we do that well now. Let's pray. Father, we are just blown away by your mercy. We're blown away, Lord, by this call to love, to be people who love so well because we have been loved so well.
So Lord, we ask for your grace to be able to do that now. We can't do this in our own strength. We just admit that to you, Lord. We need you to work through us, through the power of your spirit, to make us a people who are known, known by our mercy, known by our love. Lord, because we have a master, a savior, who is merciful and loving. So God, would you give us this grace and we just confess to you that we need you, Lord. We need you every moment. We need you with every step. We pray this all in your powerful and mighty name, the name of Jesus Christ, amen.